the market is so hot, it's crazy. But at the same time, I feel like it's tough to say that it's not a good time to buy today because then we're saying that tomorrow is going to be a better time. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I just got back this morning from hanging out at the zoo, the Oregon Zoo with my kids and uh, saw the most amazing thing that just made our visit to the zoo. I got to see an elephant jump into a big pool of water and dive like fully immersed underwater, couldn't see him and just like splashing and playing and like diving. And it was amazing. I didn't even know elephants could go underwater. Did you know that? <laughs> That's super cool. I've only seen that in like cartoons. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we were we and it just so happened that we had lunch at this like little picnic bench nearby. We were like, oh, let's stop and have lunch. And we were walking by the elephant exhibit and there it was. And they well, all of a sudden were just throwing like carrots and stuff in the water. And they were doing this like whistle call. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this elephant comes walking up from around the corner and he just jumps right into the water. And it was pretty deep. Obviously, elephants are pretty big. And he just jumped right in and was doing diving and all the way under. Couldn't even see him. And popped his head up and yeah it was like splashing around like a little kid it was so cool it was an amazing sight i mean i've been to a ton of zoos and never ever saw that so it was a pretty amazing no usually when you go all the animals are just sleeping they're like napping, or they're nowhere to be seen Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they open their eyes, you're like, oh my gosh, there's an animal that's awake. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's amazing. So cool. Yeah. Love that. I love that. It kind of reminds me of this totally unrelated, but I don't know why it reminds me of this. I saw on Instagram, this uh, video of this zookeeper putting this baby seal in Mm -hmm. water for the first time. And this cute little baby seal, just they were putting this seal into the water. And but the funny part is the caption to Uh the video said live footage of me rejoining social events after a year of the pandemic. (laughs) I'm like, yep, that's how I just like what's happening. I don't know what's happening. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm wondering when things are going to get back to like really back to normal where you don't have that second thought. Cause even now Mm -hmm. I heard California just reopened completely. And I'm like, I can't even imagine like sitting next to a stranger in a movie theater. Like I just, and I'm, I don't even know, are they still requiring masks or is it just completely like free for all? No, they, well, it is free for all with some exceptions. So for, if you're vaccinated, it's sort of, it's not required, but it is, masks are still required in public transit, healthcare and schools. And then each workplace can decide, I think. Got it. Okay. But who knows by the time we're, it's June now, as we're recording this, who knows what the world will be like when this episode airs. But anyway, so <laughs> let's talk about today's episode. 
where we're featuring Dennis Shapiro. He's the founder of SIH Capital Group, and he's the author of the book, The Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. And what I love about Dennis is we're talking about going back into places where we're feeling a little uncomfortable, right? But Dennis thrives in that. He loves learning about all these alternative investment strategies, and he's done so since he was a teenager. He started investing with his first thousand dollars that he saved up working an after-school job when he was in high school, and he got into non-traditional investments. And I love how he talks about how he balances those strategies. For him, it's not one or the other. It's how can I create the best combination of these different investments so that I get sort of the benefits of all of them? Yeah. Dennis is like how I want my son to be at 14, reading Rich Dad, Poor right? Dad. Yeah. And like he wasn't into it at 14, but it sounds like not mm-hmm. long after that, he read it again and was totally into it. I hope that by the time all of my kids graduate from high school, that they're totally into it, that they understand it, they get it, and that they're hungry to learn about how they can maximize their financial success. Because obviously, as we know, that's definitely tied to your success, I believe, and happiness in life in general. And so clearly he's mastered that. And so it's so cool. And it was just fun to hear his perspective on diversification and the benefits of funds. We also talked about the risks in funds and we got to talk about where investors can go to learn. We talked a little bit about his book and just got to really tap him for where he's been and where he's kind of at now in terms of all these alternative investments. He's definitely the person I wish I met like 10, 15 years ago, right? Where, but that wasn't a possibility unless we had a connection to somebody who was in the country club industry, as he uh, referred to it prior to the Jobs Act in 2012. So we dive into all of that kind of stuff, why we now know about passive investments and why we're even having the conversation we have now because of that. So it was a great, great conversation. And for all of our listeners, definitely be sure to grab a copy of his book, The Alternative Investment Almanac. If you're new to all these different asset classes. It's a great sort of intro to all these alternative investment strategies. But if you know, you're like, you know what, out of these, I really want to focus on real estate syndication. I really want to learn multifamily, as he calls it, the gateway investment. A great place to start there is to get a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of our listeners. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. Now with that, let's dive into our conversation with Dennis Shapiro. Dennis, welcome to the show. How are you? I am super excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. We cannot wait to pick your brain because we know you have experience in a lot of different asset classes and our listeners are going to love hearing about that. Now, Dennis, I know you began investing in real estate in 2012 when the market was just beginning to start to recover from the global financial crisis. And in the years since, you've built a cash flowing portfolio, including many alternative assets like note and ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, tech startups, industrial property, short-term rentals. There's practically nothing you haven't done. And in 2019, you co-founded an investment club for accredited investors to help them build wealth 
through alternative investments as well. So we're going to dive into all of that as well as your book, newly launched. So we'll talk about all of that, but start by taking us back to the beginning of your real estate story. What were you doing in the years leading up to 2012 when you started investing in real estate and what prompted you to start down this path? Sure. So if you don't mind, I'll actually rewind it a little bit before that. So in 2004, I was in high school and my oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. My family is one where if you find something good, you tend to share it and not only share it, but really like almost market it, share it to your other family members. So my older brother was about eight years older than me. Read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, light bulb went off. He says, you have to read it. I read it in high school and I was like, I hate this book. I was like, I think this guy is like a scam. He's probably getting more money from his talks than what's actually preached in the book. I just don't think I was ready for it. You know, a few years later, I reread the book, you know, a hundred times and I absolutely love it. But I remember reading it when I was 14 and I couldn't stand the book. I was like, I was like, this thing is a scam. But I was like, I don't mind this idea of starting to build a buy assets. I had no one to talk to in my high school, you know, besides playing sports and watching sports. No one really was interested in this stuff. So I started doing- No teenagers were interested in building wealth and investing. (laughs) It's a shocker. It's an absolute shocker, but no, not in my immediate circle. I also had trouble talking to teachers about this. I had trouble talking to like anybody about this. And even my older brother, even though he gave me the book, he kind of, I would say like his interest level usually is like a one or two on these type of things. And I like to go full, full circle and really dive into it. So I really had no one to kind of learn this new assets and everything like that. So I kind of listened to what he was doing. My oldest brother started in mutual funds. So I was like, wow, that's a great idea. I remember I had a part-time job scooping ices and I saved about $1,000 and I was super excited. I got to buy my first mutual fund when I was, uh, I think, 14, 15 years old. I followed that thing for a whole year expecting to be rich. And I think I made like $7. And I was like, okay, there has to be a better way because I I don't think $7 is really the wealth that I think Rich Dad, Poor Dad was referring to. So then I started going the more traditional path, started reading more about Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett. And I did stock picking. I went to college for the simple fact of just, hey, I really want to do stocks. And unfortunately, I collided with the global financial crisis where I was going to view for internships. And then like a week later, the company that I was interviewing for last week was already out of business. So I finished my bachelor's. I was like, wow, maybe the financial world, maybe graduating during the great global financial crisis is a calling and saying that, hey, maybe you need to do something else. I went on to go get my MBA. And in the middle of my MBA, I was actually recruited by the government, which I thought was like a refreshing change of pace because I couldn't get an internship in the financial world about being recruited by the government. And I remember my first paycheck from the government, I realized not only were they my employer, they were also my partner, business partner, because of how much taxes they were taking out. (laughs) And that's actually the light bulb that went towards the alternative investment space. Because then I started researching where you really are limited to what you could do with traditional assets. When it comes to alternative assets, there's just so much more planning and so much more you can kind of do that you're just, you're not able to do with traditional assets. 
What an amazing head start, even though Rich Dad Poor Dad didn't take the first time you read it, but to have had that exposure so early in life. And also, can I just say, amazing that you worked hard 14, 15 years old when most teenagers are thinking about buying a car, right? Or going out with their friends or you know, buying clothes. And here you are, you save up $1,000 and you buy a mutual fund. You must have been the most popular kid in your high school. But what an amazing financial head start, right? And then even though that wasn't the right path, you quickly learned, wait a second, this isn't, this isn't going to build me the wealth that I want, which means you knew what you wanted. You had an idea that there was something else that was possible, which I think it takes most people many years, decades to get to even that point where they realize, wait, this isn't what I want. So you got that really early on. And then you went to work for the government, which the first time I started as a teacher. So I had a government paycheck as well. And the first time I got that paycheck, I was like, I mean, a teacher's paycheck is already pretty low. And then uh-huh. I looked at all the line items. I was like, wait, what is this thing and this thing and that thing? And so you got that paycheck. You realized, wait a second, this isn't quite what I wanted either. So you decided you were going to go into alternative investments. So where do you even start there? I imagine it's much like when you were in high school where there was not many people to talk to, to figure this stuff out. How did you get started in that space? Yeah, so I did what I probably shouldn't have done. I went back to the family tree and my oldest brother had a couple of rental properties and I was like, hey, I'll just buy one from you. And I was like, I need I need the tax write-off. And basically, you know, he got to look at his whole portfolio and say, well, this is the one I don't, I don't really want. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, give it to I, my did, little brother, <laughs> give it to my little brother, but I did every mistake under the sun. I didn't get a market analysis. I didn't really even look, I, I didn't even visit the property before I knew it had a tenant in there. I knew the rent. I was like, okay, this makes sense. I'll probably save a lot on taxes. I was like, let's do it. And then a couple of years later, you're kind of like, wow, I made a lot of mistakes, didn't I? <laughs> What year was this in what market? 2012. And this is in East Orange, New Jersey, which is a rough, low income market. And I got to experience everything that comes along with a rough, low income market, <laughs> including evictions and funny police stories and break ins. I'll even give you guys a hack later on about a must-have when dealing with low-income rentals. But yeah, everything under the sun, that was a great entry point in my alternative investment career. Okay. So you invest in this a lesson, right? <laughs> of a property, right? You learned that it was like you were paying tuition to buy this property and you probably ran into a lot of surprises along the way. From there, I know you continued investing in real estate and alternative investments. So tell us a little bit about that. Why not you invest in this rental property? It's not quite going as you expected. How come you didn't just throw in the towel and say, well, I tried real estate. Guess that's not going to work. On to the next thing. So I kind of did for a little bit. I lived in New York City at that time. So the very next property that I did buy two years later was a duplex. And it turned out to be an incredible investment. So everything that the low-income housing play wasn't, 
the duplex was. Like I was living there. It was a much better area. I knew what was going on in the property. I bought it right. So I had a really good experience, but I was pretty tapped out because I was in the New York City market and I didn't really want to go out of state. I didn't really, I just wanted to kind of stay local. I wasn't creative enough. I probably could have bought a couple more duplexes at that time if I would have birded out, but I really didn't even know about the term at that point. So I kind of was like, okay, I got three rentals. I'm okay. I still had a good size equity portfolio. So the one thing that I didn't like the idea of saying, okay, I really kind of like real estate better. So I'm just going to sell everything I have and go in there. I liked the idea of trying to look at what my traditional assets were doing for me at the time and saying, well, how can my alternative assets actually complement that? And it took me a really long time to get to that mentality. My whole book is really about that mentality where I've been investing in traditional assets like stocks and bonds since since I bought that mutual fund 20 years ago. So I, I didn't want to give up that experience, but I realized that there's a much simpler way of doing it where I could just kind of buy index funds, put 1% of my brain power on that. And then I could spend 99% of my brain power on alternative investments because that's where it's networking is required, due diligence, learning underwriting. So I realized that I could blend them really, really well, where if I just looked at my traditional portfolio as an appreciation play on autopilot, where I wasn't going to trade. I was just going to buy some low-cost index funds, leave it there. Later on, I got to do some cool collateralizations on them, but basically set it, forget it, very little brain power. And then I started looking at my right side, my rental portfolio. So I was like, wow, everything that my traditional portfolio is not, it is, right? So low volatility, everything is private. Nothing's trading hands. I'm like, wow, I really like that complementing the fact that my traditional portfolio, I could sell at any time. Then I was looking at my traditional portfolio. Once I went to autopilot, I definitely have a lot of good reasons why I did end up going to autopilot. But my main reason was because I realized that the income strategies for traditional stocks and bonds are flawed. Because of the liquidity, you'll never really achieve a good income base from traditional portfolio. So what I realized is the alternative portfolio was absolutely perfect for that, where the yield was so much higher, there's much less volatility because they're private instruments and they kind of came together really, really well. So in my life, I went from all traditional to some alternative to like a break and just like I kind of went with the whole fire movement for a few years. And then I kind of went back and said, okay, I can make a couple of tweaks here on my traditional side of my portfolio, but now I could slowly add on to my alternative income portfolio where I started getting into note funds and life insurance policies and all these private instruments that really, they are kind of related in some strange ways when you really get into them. And I found that it was much more beneficial to my portfolio when I started looking at the situation as an end situation, how the traditional investments and alternative investments work versus a verse situation saying this is better than that. I love that holistic approach. And it sounds like you went through multiple phases and tried different things, but it sounds like you were really looking for that balance and the complementary strategies throughout the different things you were investing. And I love what you said about the having a little bit of everything rather than just one thing. So I, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people, when they find an investment strategy, they seem to understand and it seems to work for them. They're like, okay, 
going all in on this one. This is the one, right? And so, but you took a different approach, right? You started with stocks and mutual funds early on, but you didn't let that go once you got into real estate. You got into real estate and you asked yourself, well, how can I balance this in conjunction with my traditional investing? How can they complement each other? So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I kind of came to this conclusion where I was approaching the fire movement. I was approaching early retirement and I was looking at my portfolio and I didn't like the whole idea of a bond and stock portfolio. I was looking at the low yields. I didn't like the idea. And I also hated the idea where you have to sell a portion of your portfolio every year to kind of live off. And I hated the idea. Like I, I was in my 30s. I have three kids. I value assets. I want to have more assets when I die than when I'm living, but I still want to have a really comfortable life. So what I wanted out of my portfolio was a portfolio that can appreciate and produce enough income without having to sell it. And what I realized is there's no way I was going to get that through traditional means. And at the same time, I felt like doing it all in alternative, I was missing out because in my mind, the easiest place most people do invest in is traditional. They're not looking to get into syndications until a later part in their investment journey. So I know, I don't want to call it a bubble or anything like that, but I know traditional stocks, they have a good track record. If you look back at the last 100 years, 8% is not too shabby. So I didn't want to give that up. I just wanted to complement it in a way that made sense to me mainly. And originally, you know, I really tried to do it all through traditional. I tried every income strategy under the sun. I went with MLPs and REITs and closed-ended funds and corporate and uh, high-yield bond funds. And every single time, the same pattern always emerged. I would get two, three years of above-sized yield, but during a market correction, all my yield was gone. And it would happen over and over and over again to a point where I just realized liquidity leads to volatility and volatility destroys yield. So I said, okay, that's not going to work there. So where is it going to work? And I realized, hey, there's very little minimal liquidity in the alternative investment space. And that's the magic why it can give you the high yield. It can still give you some appreciation, depends on how you buy your alternative investments, but it's much more well-suited for that while leaving the traditional investments more suited for what I think they're good at. It's almost like you were hedging your bets, really planning for any sort of life situation, right? Because life always throws you curveballs. And so if all your eggs were in one basket, you would have the, you know all these sorts of problems potentially. But as you balance your portfolio, you really hedge your bets against anything that comes your way. So I love that. Now, I know you're invested in a whole bunch of different types of assets now, and you've already talked about learning about all these different types of investment strategies. Now, I know there are listeners out there who are like, oh, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> Learning about all these, and then you got to put money here and you got to wait and you got to try this one and wait. And so tell us a little bit about that process and the mindset behind that. How do you know what you're looking for and how do you decide what you're going to try next? Sure. So I got in what I call the gateway alternative investment, and I think that's apartment buildings. So when I got started in investing in syndications, I started networking with other investors, limited partners, so to say. And we would get on calls every like three months. I try to do one quarter thing and we get on calls and we say like, hey, what are you investing in? What operators are you investing in? What markets are you invested in? And what ended up happening is like a 30-minute conversation would become a two-hour conversation. 
And after that two-hour conversation, it wasn't just about apartment buildings. They would tell me about self-storage operators and mobile home park operators and the life insurance policy hack that they're using to buy some of this stuff. And all of a sudden, you started real. I started realizing that once you kind of learn the language of commercial real estate, it's very assignable to self-storage or mobile home parks. Yes, there's little nuances. Like for mobile home parks, you need to really focus on the utilities and environmental studies. But for the most part, it's about the cap rates. It's about the NOI. And it's about the business plan that gets the NOI from point A to point B. So once you kind of learn the basics of one of those asset classes, they're so transferable to all these other asset classes. And that's kind of the way I got started. I got started with the apartment buildings. I think I actually did a note fund first, but for the most part, when I started analyzing business plans and that was with the apartment buildings, that's when I kind of took the next step in my investment journey. Can you tell us a little bit about so the Jobs Act? Because I think we've never talked about this on the show, but it's so relevant to why we're even having this discussion right now. Because for me, I spent the last probably five years understanding syndication and multifamily, this new world, new to me. But before that, I had spoken to all kinds of different financial advisors looking for these types of alternative investments. So can you talk to us about what the Jobs Act is and how it changed everything and how that leads us to why we're even having this conversation now about these alternative investments? Yeah, that's a great switch point. So the JOBS Act is basically the reason why we are here and the explosion of the syndication world. So the passing of the JOBS Act transformed the industry. So the industry, the whole syndication industry before the JOBS Act was considered a country club industry. So basically, you had to always have a relationship with the operator. And usually these operators would hang out in the country clubs because they wanted to socialize with high network individuals. So if in your network, you didn't have one of these operators, you would never know where to go and actually invest in one of these deals. 2012, the Jobs Act with Regulation D made all of that happen. They put rules in place where you can advertise to credit investors or you you can have pre-existing relationships and everything like that. So it basically spawned the whole industry as we know it. And it's not just towards apartment buildings. Basically, any security, any syndication really is derived from the basic principles of the JOBS Act. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so important for everyone to understand because I've gotten this question when I've spoken to investors. I've spoken to hundreds of them now at this point. And everyone would always ask, why didn't I know about this sooner? And I always had that same question. And so the answer is it leads back to the Jobs Act and how that changed the way that these types of opportunities are allowed to be marketed to the general public, basically. So I know that you've invested in a ton of different stuff. And I love that you made the relationship between you know, multifamily investing kind of being what you referred to as the gateway alternative investment, because I know it was certainly that way for me as well. And for us at Good Egg Investments has always been a focus. But right now, multifamily is so crazy. We see a lot of people overpaying. We haven't done a deal for a long time. And so we're starting to really go back to the drawing board and really starting to look at what alternative investments really make sense for us at this point in time, where we are in the marketplace, and what's happening, what we see coming down the pipeline. Talk to us a little bit about the different types of investments that you've done and kind of why you see them. Like what play do you see moving forward? Are you still investing in multifamily right now? 
or what do you see happening going back to the basics what's happening with multifamily and where do you see the alternative investment focus kind of moving towards i know you've done some notes i know you've done atms mobile home park self-storage what out of those do you think is should be a passive investor's focus over the next six months 12 months 18 months what do you see kind of coming down the pipeline that's such a great question. And I agree with you. The market is so hot. It's crazy. But at the same time, I feel like it's tough to say that it's not a good time to buy today because then we're saying that tomorrow is going to be a better time. And you could make that argument for the last maybe nine years or so and never have purchased anything. Yep. I think the key is it's not about the asset class as much as the operator. Like right now, it's so much more about the operator than it ever has before. Like if we just rewind to the fact that the Jobs Act is nine years old, like we're literally in this boom period where a person takes a coaching class and they're raising for a 150 unit building the next week. And you have to be able to look at it. And I'm guilty of it as well. Like I look at my first deal that I ever invested in. I'm like, what was I thinking? I was like, this is a really, really not good <laughs> deal. But you have to go through that. So I think the best thing to do is I personally with apartment buildings and syndications is the minimum is pretty high. That's where I think something like joining an investment club is critical or networking with people that are going to give you unbiased information is so critical. I'm not talking about for a day or two. It takes months. I remember it took like nine months of phone calls where I would have an unbiased conversation with a fellow investor because they knew my interests were aligned with theirs. And once you get to that point, then you could zero in on the really, really successful operators. And then at that point, then you could still do an operator. I just see that the terms are just lower, but you could still get double-digit returns. And if the operator has 30, 40 years of experience, they're probably going to still hit their numbers. Some of these financing terms that I'm seeing it's making me look at these deals and we're like, wow, this deal is not that great, but wow, 2.6% interest rate, five-year IO. It's really hard to lose on something <laughs> like that. I don't want to say like, all right, right now it's a better time to invest in self-storage because in my book, I cover all these different asset classes. I think I have nine total. And the pros and cons, like self-storage, for example, has seen so much new supply come in where it's literally like two years of the most recent supply takes out 50 years of supplies going back like centuries. So it's so hard with pros and cons. Mobile home parks, same thing. They are in such high demand where in my local area, I was looking at a mobile home park that was trying to sell at a two cap. And I'm like, wow, I might as well just buy them in hand at that point. So, and, and it was an off-market deal. I was like, wow, I couldn't imagine what an on-market deal would look like from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not as much as the actual asset class as much as about the operator. I still feel pretty good in the multifamily space, if it's an operator that I spoke to 12 different investors and they have nothing but the greatest things to say about them.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes total sense. Something that we always talk about and Good Egg is always talking about, sometimes investors get so zoomed in and focused on the deal specifics. And it's not always about the deal because it's really about the operator and the, how they're going to handle the, the performance of the deal when things go wrong, right? Anyone can present a great deal and it looks good on paper. But the big question is when things start to not go right, which they often do, how is that operator going to handle that situation? And so really focusing on that, I think is, is uh, great advice. I wanted to ask you, when I first got into this space in 2016, I knew nothing about syndications, didn't even know really what it is, what it was, kind of fell into it by accident, reached out to someone on bigger pockets and opportunity to be a passive investor um, to buy an apartment as we know as syndication. Somebody out there is like, I want to learn out, uh, about this and I want to understand where can people go if they're really looking for some guidance to learn about these alternative investments. I know you have your book, so I do want to ask about your book and kind of what the core focus is there. But tell us a little bit about where else might somebody be able to go as a passive investor to learn and get the guidance they need. Because as we know, like you've said, and same for me, the time to understand these types of investments is long, right? And so where can people go these days? Like, do you have resources? Like, what do you recommend somebody do to really immerse themselves and learn about these types of opportunities so that they don't make big $100,000 mistakes? Sure. So this is like just a super shameless plug on my end. So I wrote the book, my book, The Alternative Investment Almanac, Experts Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. I know it's a handful. Exactly (laughs) for that purpose. I wanted to make it very clear that for for investors that are newly accredited or traditional investors, that there's a whole world out there that is not like hidden. You just have to know where to look. So the way I structured the book is it's not one asset. So it's a little bit about my journey, how I got into the space, kind of what we went over today, but then it gets into a high level introduction of the actual asset. So you might get like 15 to 20 pages of the background, the Jobs Act and the different regulations associated with it. I also cover a whole chapter, a whole section, what I call bad apples, where are like things that you have to look out for that might be an, a really negative sign, like that it might be a Ponzi scheme or something of that nature, because they're all over the place, unfortunately. The best part, my favorite part in the book is after this high level introduction, it gets into two Q&As with some really big names from the space that I'm really fortunate enough to actually agree to participate in the book. So what it allows you to do is it allows you to get a good overview of the asset class without having to read 300 pages about it. And if they like what they are hearing or, or reading, then they could go in and learn more. Then this is where I would say, then you get into podcasts that focus in on apartment buildings, like your podcast and similar natures. Podcasts are definitely the way to go if you're, if you're commuting. Like I've devoured podcasts for the last... I don't know, nine years or so. Ever since I started, I think I listened to Bigger Pockets, you know, both, like one time the complete series and everything like that. So I think podcast is the way to go. There's also some great authors out there in the syndication space. I know Brian Burke has a great book on it. Joe Fairless has a great book on it. Those books are really, really good. If there's a couple of key ones that if you read them, they really provide a good start to finish. But they're all about apartment buildings. It's harder to find information about some of the the other alternative asset spaces. Like, I don't think there's a book out there on ATM funds. I know there's books on mobile home parks, but the main resource I would recommend is definitely podcasts. 
But then a close second would be to real estate conferences where the speakers, you have to pay close attention who the speakers are because you don't want to go to like a regular, hey, this is a buy and hold and a wholesaler type conference. Because if you're looking to be passive, then you need to be, be going to a conference where the speakers are all operators in that space or experts in their own little niches in that space. So what that'll allow you to do is that'll allow you to network with other like-minded people. I think the networking is probably the by far the most important resource because your network is going to is going to make or break you. If you get good people around you that are giving you good information and that you're providing value in return, then your investment career is going to take off. And that's what happened to me with my investment club. Like before the investment club and I was making the investments myself, it's like night and day. Once I started networking and had in-depth conversations and where three people were looking at the same deal, the pros and cons and saying, hey, but wait, you missed this. And then I missed that. Let's follow up with the operator about A, B, and C. That's when it became a much more what I call actively passive type of situation. And those resources are out there. The last thing I would also recommend is you could also join a mastermind or a coaching class. They're not just for operators. You could definitely get into a situation where you could join a mastermind for multifamily operators, but you will learn so much in terms of how underwriting the deal, how operators present the deal, that it's so worth what the price of admission is because the initial investments are usually pretty high. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think just having that one connection or that one resource can make all the difference. So it's all in the power of the network. And I love how you talk about your book. It's almost like Julie loves when I use the buffet analogy. So I'm going to bring in the buffet analogy. <laughs> Where it's okay. So it's been a long time because of COVID that I've been to a buffet. But when I go to a buffet, right, the first time you go through the line, there's all this good looking food, right? But you don't know what tastes good and what you're going to like. So you get your plate and then you put a little bit of everything. You can try it, right? You take it back to your seat and you try everything. And you're like, oh, I really like that one, but I didn't like that one. So the second time you go back with a plate, you know exactly what you're going to get, right? Because you're like, okay, I tried that one. Now I'm going to get a heaping mound of that one. Definitely not going to touch that one, right? So it sounds like your book is that perfect buffet introduction to all of these alternative investments. It's like, if you're new to this space, you're not quite sure exactly which one is the right one for you, then this almanac will really give you sort of an intro to a whole bunch of different asset classes, some of which our listeners might not even have ever heard of before, right? And then you sort of go into the ins and outs, the Q&A, the pros and cons of each one. So by the end of the book, they will know, okay, I want to focus on these two and I'm going to move forward there. I have said it better myself. Awesome. So before we move on, I wanted to ask you one thing. I know you guys just opened up a fund or you're about to open up a fund. Is that right? Yes. So I did launch a fund in January of this year. So it's an alternative investment income fund. So it's basically where I blend a couple of these asset classes together to kind of give a higher yield from day one. And it's a much simplified version of investing because there's no backend splints, there's no waterfalls, there's no nothing. It's more like a private REIT versus sometimes investors could get overwhelmed when they look at the deal structures of some of these syndicators out there. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've talked about this before in the past, kind of what are some of the benefits of having a fund structure versus investing into a specific property or asset? Talk to us about the risks. When you invest into a fund, what might be some of the risks that some investors might not be aware of that they should be considering? The one big thing is, look at one deal, it's one LLC. It's usually pretty easy to diagnose what the fees are, the expenses are, what they're going to be potentially making. A fund gives you a lot of diversification, but it can be misleading with the fees. That was one thing that I wanted to do with the whole simplified version because it's just me on my fund is there's no management fees. So everything, their preferred return literally comes before everything. And that was kind of my goal to do it. When I was looking for yield, when I was 10 years ago, this would have been the product I would have wanted to be out there. And now tell us on the fund, what is your sort of investment philosophy when it comes to organizing the fund? Like what are the focuses or like for us, we always talk about like capital preservation is always at the core of everything we do. Capital preservation sort of leads and guides us in all the decisions that we make, whether we invest in an asset class or with a particular operator or in a particular market. Like what is your investment philosophy as you're putting these funds together and mixing asset classes? That's the first question. Then the second question is what asset classes are in the fund? Sure. Both great questions. So the first one is that our focus is to help accredited investors increase their income through alternative investments, which we also believe lowers their volatility of their overall portfolio if they do have a traditional portfolio, because everything in our portfolio is all private securities. The main philosophy is all capital preservation. We're not promising 20 plus percent returns. We're all about the higher yield from day one, but more of like a stable return uh, flow throughout the life of the fund. So the reason why, so the way we blended the portfolio is it's mostly apartment building syndications, but we also do some mobile home park and self-storage funds, not individual deals. We also have one ATM fund. That one ATM fund allows us to pay the higher yield from day one because it's huge cash flow. The way that ATM funds are structured, it's all about the cash flow. It's not an appreciation play. So what we found is that when I invested in syndications, the typical syndication would have a lag period, right? So the first year of an apartment building or two years of an apartment building, you'll get the low single digit returns and they'll start scaling up slowly. Typical deal. I'm not talking about exceptions, but that's what I found in my history. So I didn't want to do a fund where it was it had that wind-up period. So I found that if I could blend it with the ATM fund and other funds that are currently operating, I could add instant diversification with a high yield from day one. So I know that funds are kind of the new popular thing that a lot of people are doing. Why do you think that's the case? I think operators are finding difficulty raising against each other. So what I found was, especially like last year, I think sometime in August, all of a sudden I had six deals hit my pipeline at the same time. And what ended up happening is I know those six operators will probably have raised that money easily separately. 
<laughs> but it kind of had that box office effect where you don't want to release your movie during Star Wars right. because all of a sudden the syndication investor out there pool of money got split so many different ways and you saw the multiple emails start going out and saying, oh, this deal just got a little better. Here it is because they were having difficulty raising that money. So I think the fund allows them to have like, I guess, war ammo for them to go out more deals as the deals come across without having to go to war looking for investor money when they need it, as opposed to I'd rather attract it all year long and then I'll apply it. But it is a little bit of a dangerous game because I talk to some operators who would do the fund model and I'll catch like a mistake that they're looking and because they're not focused strictly on funds. So you have to be careful. You have to make sure that your syndicator who's just getting into the fund model actually knows funds versus, because like you said, it is very, very trendy. So almost every operator out there is launching a fund or they'll mimic a fund with the dual class structure where they offer the high cash pref and they'll have a but with no back end so i, I kind of see it both ways if they either do one or the other at this point and what's the last question before we move on to the next round what is the average size of your funds or is this the only one this one that you launched in january is that the only one you've ever done or have you done others no this is my first fund okay. my previous success was just from the investment club and so this is two and a half million dollar fund I purposely am keeping it small because I want to keep the staff as small as possible. At this point, mm-hmm. it's just me. And that allows me to basically have no management expenses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to move into the life and money show spotlight round where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? So one thing I've been doing is really fighting what I call like the investor dilemma is because we're always planning ahead so much where we're always looking into years and years in advance. And I kind of got guilty, especially in my family life to tell my wife, well, we're going to go on a vacation next year and next year and next year. And I think it's come to the point in my life where I realized my kids are growing up very, very fast. And as an investor, I need to plan, but I need to be much more present than I've been guilty of in the past. So the one thing I've been doing is just really, really trying to be present, trying to plan way more dates and trips with the family and everything like that. It's hard. It's almost against my nature of saving, but it's knowing that I have to try to live in this moment because otherwise I'm not going to have a family to share it with later on. Right. Yeah. And this is what we do it all for is to be able to do all of those fun date nights and the travel and the fun stuff with the family. So love that. And I love that you're being intentional about it too. And you're saying, okay, this is something that I need to work on. This is something that I need to focus on rather than waiting until your kids are 21 and or 18 or whatever out of the house. And you know, our adults and you look back and you say, oh my gosh, like what happened to the time? The time flew by. So I love that. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that'll make an impact in others' lives right now? Okay. So this is for anybody who has a rental property in a low income area. So I'll tell you a quick, quick story and why it's such a valuable life hack. So in uh, like, I'd say 2014, 2015, my tenant moved out 
the place needed to be gutted. I fully renovated the gut job. I general contracted the project basically myself. I was going back and forth for hours a day and the place was finally ready. On my last day going to the property, I listened to a Bigger Pockets podcast and what they recommend is any vacant unit you have, you need to put a security system. And I was looking into the, the options, but I never really found one. But Simply Safe was just blowing up at that point. And I literally, I don't know why, like I literally pulled over on the highway and ordered the alarm system and like overnighted it. So I went in there like on a Thursday, Friday, the security system came in. I came back in, I did a round, I made sure everything looks good. I put the security system in, I locked it up. Saturday morning at nine in the morning, I get a phone call and saying, uh, do we need to dispatch? I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, your alarm is going off. And I almost thought this was like a test. I was like, there's no way. I was like, I guess. But then I had to like go through my phone. I had to like text my contractors really quick. Did you leave anything? Did you come back to the house? And once I got, I started getting the nose, it's not us. I was like, no, no, please send someone over there. And uh, sure enough, I remember I drove 35 minutes. My heart was like, beating a mile a minute. I pulled up. No one's there. I was like, oh, I'm not walking into this house. So I called the alarm system. They coordinate with the police officer to come out. The kid shows up, was my age. I remember his last name was Bond. I asked him what his first name is. And of course it was James. <laughs> oh, no. I, I swear, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. So he's like, all right, we'll go through the house. We'll make sure no one's there. We start going through the house room by room. In the kitchen, I find a Home Depot bucket and the alarm is submerged in the bucket. And it's still going off. We go room by room. We don't find any really evidence of anything. We go upstairs. There's a security bag and an open window. So I guess the guy broke in pretending to be like a security guard. And it's actually kind of clever if you think about it, because all the neighbors would actually think that maybe I hired security or somebody like that. So long story short, I think I paid like $300 for that alarm system. And I would have probably walked in on Monday with no walls and no pipes. So probably it paid for itself a hundred times. So anytime you have a rental property and it's vacant, it's worth the investment. You could buy the system up front and then you could suspend the month to month. So you could literally like, I believe like a month later, my tenant moved in and I stopped the service and it was no problem. I went and I picked up the security system and I did it again whenever it became vacant, the property. So that's my life hack. The funny story is Mr. James Bond actually put in a rental application because as he was going room by room, he was really impressed by the quality of the renovation. Oh my gosh, that's and he was looking for what the, he called the gentleman's pad. And so I started the day with a potential felony and I ended the day with a really qualified tenant lead. There you go. There you go. So my funny story to stack on top of that is that I heard that bigger pockets episode, that very same one after my house got broken into, I owned a single family home in Indianapolis and did the same thing, bought the same security system and had it overnighted, bought mine because I heard it too late after the fact. So <laughs> and then never needed it after that because of course nobody broke in after that, but that's the way my story goes. So love that. That's a great hack, particularly if you are a single family home investor, definitely spend the money to invest in one of those. It's well worth it for sure. And those folks over there at the calling center are on top of it. And so, yeah, love that. All right. Last question is on life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? 
So one thing that we're really passionate about as investors in multifamily is the potential to do so much change to so many people at the same time. So I didn't realize it's definitely not altruistic because profit is definitely a motivating factor, but I joint ventured in a mobile home park in the middle of the country. It was 53 lots. We bought it. It was literally the Met Park of the community. And there's 52 families there. And after three years of renovations and evictions and dealing with nightmares after nightmares, it was night and day. We put the security systems, the cameras and everything like that. And in general, made it a place where like families could actually live there versus what it was before. So when you invest with a good operator that has a mindset of giving back you could do this to 200 units in a span of two, three years. Individually, good luck trying to do that. You'll never be able to go in and say, hey, if I have 200 rentals, but you could do it because it's a centralized location. So one of the things that I really, really want to pursue later on as my fund grows, especially in the class C areas, I would love to offer a scholarship for any property that we're invested in. Because one of the things you do develop relationships with the operators where you could email them be like, hey, do you mind if I sponsor a $500 a year scholarship? And why would they say no to that? Real estate investors get a lot of bad slack in the news, especially you know when they buy a building and they just gorge the prices. But usually, I haven't met many operators that actually do that. So f- from my experience, my operators are putting kids' playgrounds, they're fixing up the uh, pools that are no longer being used, they're renovating the clubhouses. So in general, as a real estate investor, you have a chance to impact a lot of lives in one shot. And that's where I do want SIH Capital Group, we do intend to launch a scholarship fund where we can select certain buildings that we are investing in and offer a scholarship, especially in the Class C areas. You know, everything you're talking about, that's exactly what we love about multifamily as well, that you can have such a big impact while you're investing. That's the win-win, right? You get to build wealth for your family while also having an impact in the world. That is super cool. And I love that scholarship idea. You'll definitely have to let us know when you launch that. So Dennis, tell our listeners, I'm sure they're going to want to follow up with you and learn more. What's the best place they can go? And also tell them where they can get a copy of your book. Sure. So the best place to reach me is www.sihcapitalgroup.com. So if you sign up for my email list, you'll get an abridged version of my book. So if you don't feel like reading 300 pages and 30 pages is more your style, it's definitely a great place. I also have tons of articles on my website. And the best place to get my book is Amazon Alternative Investment Almanac. It should come up at this point. All right. Dennis Shapiro, founder of SIH Capital Group and author of the book, The Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. Dennis, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience and your story with our listeners. Thank you guys for having me.